The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Lisa Bartlett is the garden manager for Smith Gilbert Gardens in Kennesaw, Georgia. She is responsible for over a 4,000 species collection of plants. This collection ranged from rare herbaceous perennials to rare unusual trees. The largest collection of bonsais in the southeast are also held at the gardens. Lisa created the award-winning butterfly exhibit at Smith Gilbert Gardens and followed up with the first crevice garden in Georgia. One of her current projects is developing what she hopes to be a nationally recognized collection of hydrangea. Lisa has also served on the board of the American Hydrangea Society. Lisa was also the host of a call-in garden show called Green and Grow. Before her passion for plants, Lisa was a talent agent for stand-up comedians. Jeff Foxworthy was one of her clients. This is episode 59, Hydrangeas for Your Garden, with Lisa Bartlett on the Garden Question podcast, an encore presentation and remix of episode 59. Lisa, is there a hydrangea for every garden? Simple answer to that is yes. There are over 49 different species of hydrangeas, really, and we have about 11 of them here at the gardens. So yeah, I would absolutely say there is a hydrangea for every garden. What have hydrangeas meant to you? Hydrangeas have always been my passion. I love hydrangeas so much. In fact, I served on the board of the American Hydrangea Society where my mentor, who was Penny McHenry, asked me to come on the board and she really taught me everything. My whole idea before I met her of hydrangeas were just big blue balls at my grandmother's. But there was a whole world out there of hydrangeas and different flower shapes and sizes. And so you can't even imagine some of these hydrangeas that they're coming up with out there. Would you tell us about the Smith Gilbert Gardens Hydrangea Collection? Here at the gardens, because they are one of my favorite plants, I'm hoping to create a nationally recognized collection of hydrangeas here at the gardens. And that means that the collection will be well labeled. We have about 11 different species, but I hope to have at least 20 different species of hydrangeas so you can see the whole gamut of the plant's growth habits and its cousins. There's only one other garden in the United States that has a nationally recognized collection of hydrangeas, and that's in Norfolk Botanical Gardens. It's really exciting. There are six really common hydrangeas. The big-leaved hydrangea, the macrophylla, is the one that everybody kind of knows. It's funny because everybody thinks it came from France, and that's not true. Every single big leaf and the serratas all came from Japan. The macrophylla or the big-leafed were more coastal-growing hydrangeas. You can tell that they were more coastal because their leaves are a little bit thicker and somewhat leathery. That was to protect them from the salt air, whereas the serratas are smaller-growing and they look a bit more perennial. They have real papery leaves because they grew in the mountain regions of Japan. Hydrangea macrophylla, would you describe it and tell us how we could use it in our gardens? 
For me, because of the round shape of their blooms, I like contrasting shapes. And I think that will carry you further in a landscape design than color. If you have lots of different textures, they complement each other and they make it more interesting. So if you have this round ball flower and then you've got this big textured leaf, I think a perfect pairing would be daylilies. I think the strappiness of the leaves and then that star shape of the daylilies makes a perfect complement. Macrophyllas, everybody thinks that hydrangeas are a shade-loving plant. That's somewhat true, but they will actually bloom better in more sun. So you want to give them the same conditions that a daylily would like. Another great pairing with hydrangeas are ferns. Autumn ferns can take a great deal of sun as well. You just want to think about the texture of the plants. So if you have a round plant, you want to put something spiky next to it and then carry that rhythm on out throughout the garden. And that will carry you further than just color. How about changing the colors of a hydrangea? How do you do that? All hydrangeas undergo some kind of color change as they age. But the big leaf hydrangeas or the the serratas, it's the pH of the soil that really is responsible for that change. Usually the presence of aluminum or lime or anything acidic. If you wanted your hydrangeas to be more on the purple side, you would add acid. And if you wanted your hydrangeas more on the pink side, you would add lime. And that's why so often hydrangeas that are up close to people's homes are pink because they're getting the lime leached out of the concrete in the foundation of their homes. Sometimes you'll see a hydrangea that has purple and pink or blue and pink all on the same plant. And you're thinking, what's going on there? That's usually because the roots have gone out and they have found either a rock that had lime in it or gone into some more compost where it's more acidic, but you can't change the color of a white hydrangea if it's in the ground. Now, you can cut those white blooms and put them in food coloring and they will take up the color, but probably the best way to change the color. And does that process usually take a couple of seasons to happen? If you want the color, you're going to have to start early in the spring. So if you want your hydrangeas to be blue or purple, you'll want to start adding acid to the soil, like a acid, or they make special product. Azalea food is a good one to add to it. You'll want to do that probably in the fall so that the plant has a chance to get those chemicals up into its roots to change the pH in that following spring. They'll have plenty of time to change color. One of the questions it seems like I'm always asking, you probably are too, every time I do a garden talk, somebody always asks me the question, how do you prune a hydrangea? Would you give us the insight on how to prune the macrophyllus? Yeah, that's a real mystery for a lot of people. Here's just a simple, good rule of thumb. I tell people if you have a macrophylla and you don't know if it's Ramontan or a repeating bloomer like endless summer or something like that, then it is best not to prune your hydrangeas past July because you'll be cutting off blooms, which will be next year's old wood. Most macrophyllas bloom on old wood, which means this year's growth will be next year's blooms. So I don't prune past July just to be sure. Another good rule of thumb, if you don't know what your hydrangea is, do not prune in the spring at all because you will be pruning off all those blooms. It's also best not to prune your hydrangeas before all danger of frost is over because what happens is those dots of a hydrangea are very pithy. They're hollow. And what happens is that the rain will come after you've pruned it and it will drip down into those stems and it will cause it to explode if there's a freeze all the way down to the base, killing it. That's another great reason not to prune your hydrangeas until well after frost. Here at the gardens, we leave our bloom heads on there to dry. It adds winter interest, but also it helps protect that next bloom right below it so that that bloom has a chance to be protected, kind of like having a a natural blanket over it to protect it from those weird freezes that we can get in the spring. What about the debris that builds up within the stems? Is that an issue? 
It is an issue because it harbors insects. It's a real problem right now with an insect that is in the boar family, which is a little tiny beetle that gets in there because it likes pithy hollow stems. Fema will get in there and lay her eggs, and it's not the insect that kills that stem. It's actually the fungus that is produced for the young larva to feed on, especially noticeable in macrophylla. So you've got this beautiful, turgid plant that looks very healthy, and then you've got this one weird stem that's very wilted. That is a sure sign that plant does not need water. You need to look at that stem and see if there's any holes or any little pieces of sawdust or pinpricks, and there's a bore in there, and you need to cut that stem all the way down to the ground and burn it. Do not compost it, because that little larva will live in there, be able to come out in his life cycle and spread it all over again. Yeah, it's bad. One of the macrophylas is the lace cap. Tell us about that. I love lace caps. And the first lace cap I ever saw was here, actually, in Georgia. I thought it was the most beautiful plant. That flower of the lace cap is actually just a non-fertile flower, which is so funny because when I show people what the true flower of a hydrangea is, it's very similar to a dogwood or poinsettias. The fertile flowers are those little tiny ones with all those little frilly filaments on them. It's the sterile flowers that are on a lace cap that are only there to draw insects to it to say, look how pretty I am. Come to me and pollinate me. I don't know if you've ever noticed if you're walking in your garden and you see some of those sepals turned upside down. That is that plant's way of letting an insect know, hey, don't bother coming to me. I've already been pollinated. Don't waste your time coming here. It's so fascinating the way the insects and the plants have kind of evolved to talk to each other and let each other know when is the best time for pollination. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Very interesting. species. I was not as familiar with and mistakenly thought it was macrophylla. Lace cap is the hydrangea serrata or the mountain hydrangea. Ah. Why is it so easy to confuse that with the lace cap? It's funny because most serratas are lace cap. There's a couple like little geisha that are little tiny little mop heads are so pretty blooms but they're round. Most serratas tend to be lace cap. And in fact, most wild species left to their own devices, even the macrophyllas tend to revert back to their lace cap version of themselves. It also originated from the Japan, Asia area then. Does it bloom on old wood, new wood? What does it bloom on? It does bloom on new wood. I love serratas for the South for that very reason, because of those freaky spring freezes that we can get, there's not a problem with them because they bloom, regardless of if we have a freeze or not. It's really reliable. The problem is they're a little bit smaller than macrophyllas. They don't put on that show that macrophyllas do. What I love to do is take a big macrophylla and underplant it with a skirt of serratas, which makes a lovely combination because you've got that coarse texture of the leaf of the macrophylla, and then you've got that softness of the serrata. It's a really pretty combination. Then we have hydrangea paniculatas. Would you tell us about them? Paniculatas are one of those hydrangeas that they're doing a lot of breeding with. I think everybody's familiar with or has seen the paniculata limelight, which is a fabulous white blooming hydrangea with conical shaped blooms. And it has little round leaves, but it gets very tall. To me, it looks like you've picked a bouquet in your garden and that's how it blooms. It looks like someone's holding a, a giant bouquet in your border. They're doing so much breeding with them now. Firelight turns pink, and then there's quick fire that turns pink as it ages. So they open white and then they fade to this beautiful maroon kind of pinky color. Those also bloom on new wood, so you can really prune those at any time. The other beauty about paniculatas is that they truly do take full sun and need full sun to bloom. 
that's why you often find it down at people's mailboxes or something like that. It takes full sun and has to have it to bloom. Rather cold, hardy, and heat tolerant. Absolutely. How would you use that in your garden? It depends. As we mentioned before, that there's a hydrangea for every garden. There is a paniculata for every garden where limelight can get up to 20 feet tall, believe it or not. There are smaller ones like bobo, which is a more dwarf growing one, gets maybe three feet tall uh, and has smaller blooms. Kind of do your homework on what you want in your garden, but they make beautiful hedges. To have a driveway lined with paniculatas in full sun is stunning. Plus, they age so beautifully. That's a great way to use them. But most people, because the limelights get so big, tend to put them in the back of the border. The smaller dwarfer ones can be just as happy in the front of the border as well. Are there other plants that you like to team it up with? That conical shape. So you want something softer. I love muley grass with paniculatas. I think that is such a pretty combination because you've got the pink soft texture of the bloom of the muley grass. And then you've got that hint of pink in some of these new cultivars of paniculatas. It's such a pretty combination. The wispiness of the grasses with that coarse texture of the paniculatas really makes a great combination. That winter interest, I really like that. You leave the bloom head on in the grass and it's all blowing in the wind. You've got the action going on in the garden. Yes. Daylilies, I can't say that enough. I love daylilies. I think it's the perfect marriage. Daylilies and hydrangeas. You know, back in the day in my garden in Chambly, I had a huge collection, of course, of hydrangeas. And in the back of the border, I had paniculatas. And I always left the bloom heads on, but I would spray paint them. So I would do whatever my color was for that seasonal color for winter. Some years it was silver and gold. There was a year I did Georgia, bulldogs, black and red, and my neighbors hated it. You can spray paint them. If you don't like the brown or the pretty linen color of the flowers, then you can always spray paint them and leave them on the shrubs. That would make a good, interesting conversation with the neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it would. As far as pruning, is there anything particular we need to know? No, not really. With the limelights, you want to kind of shape them so that they don't get out of control. Like I have to go prune ours actually right now that are growing up near the house. They bloom on new wood, so you can really prune them at any time. We've talked about three species here that are native to the Eastern Asian area, Japan. Do we have any native hydrangeas? We do. We do. We have, I think, some of the prettiest native hydrangeas on the planet. We have the arborescence or more commonly known as the smooth hydrangea. I think everybody's familiar with a certain arborescence called Annabelle hydrangea, which is known for its big, round, white, gosh, it just looks like foam throughout the garden when it blooms. We have a huge border of it that circles our rose garden here, and they're all getting ready to bloom, and it's just breathtaking. Those blooms are from the Annabelle hydrangea, and it's not named after a woman, as most people think it is. It's actually named where it was found in Annabelle, Illinois, because our native arborescence is a lace cap. This one happened to sport this big round white head, and they named it Annabelle hydrangea for Annabelle, Illinois, which is where it was found. There's all sorts of breeding being done now with Annabelle's because for years, your only choice were these white blossoms. Well, now there's pink versions. They're doing even darker versions of those pink versions that first came out. Invincible Spirit, I think, was the first pink arborescence, which really made history when it came out. My all-time favorite, oak leaf hydrangeas, they have four seasons of interest. They're native plants. They originated here in the South. There's an amazing colony over in Alabama, that conical-shaped flower, as opposed to the roundness of the arborescent. 
It's a big, bold plant. Got these giant oak leaf sized leaves. The blooms are just incredibly beautiful and white. There's tons of breeding being done with it. There's two different types of oak leaf. There's a double hose and hose, which means there's double blooms inside of another bloom. My favorite is called snowflake. It is extraordinarily beautiful. Four seasons of interest with all oak leaf hydrangeas. It has such a huge, long season of bloom because it just continually opens. Then you've got this incredible fall color with the oak leaf hydrangeas. People don't think about hydrangeas having fall color. Oak leaves get turned bright, bright red and bright, bright orange all on the same plant. Then you've got that beautiful exfoliating bark of the oak leaf, that cinnamon that just, oh my gosh, it's beautiful in the winter landscape. There's so many ways to use oak leaf. Right now, I have ours paired here at the gardens, underplanted them with a smaller growing macrophylla, which is called mini penny. That one gets about four feet tall and is reliably blue. Got blue and white. And then in front of that, I've got orange daylily. It's a really pretty combination. I like that. How do you keep the deer off of them? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult one. Because here at the gardens, we don't use any chemicals. We don't use any herbicides. I haven't had a manicure in six years since I took this job. We do use boiled milk. We'll use hair. We've got a fake coyote. His name is Wiley Coyote, and he stands out there. But eventually, they're hungry. They're going to eat. And we as homeowners put out this buffet for deer and then expect them not to touch our buffet. During COVID, when we didn't have many visitors, the deer really got very unafraid. They ate several of my oak leaves, which I'd always thought were deer resistant. But in fact, they love that new growth in the spring. They ate every single one of my roses down to the graft. I hesitated to put in more roses, but I did. They do like hydrangeas for sure. The last native, it's amazing to me that we'd even call it a hydrangea. I don't know how it qualifies, but that's a climbing hydrangea. Yes. There are several different climbing hydrangeas, some native to Japan, but the one that we have that's native here that I think a lot of people don't even think twice about when they're walking in the woods. They just assume it's poison ivy, and that's a Decumaria barbara, which is a beautiful, dark, oval-shaped leaf, shiny. It's really extraordinary. When it blooms, it is frothy. It looks like the tree that it's climbing on is blooming, when in fact it's this beautiful vine. I think the reason why they've discovered it in the hydrangea family, which Dutzia apparently is in the hydrangea family, it has to do with their seed pods. It has to do with the seed. It has to do with so many different things. But you would not consider Decumaria barbara a hydrangea. But in fact, it is a beautiful climbing, somewhat evergreen hydrangea. If you have a tree stump in your garden or if you have a tree that you would love something to climb up and bloom, Decumaria Barbara is your girl. So I guess you just told us how to use it on a dead tree stump. Or is there other ways? Some people do bonsai them. I have to put a shameless plug out there. Uh, We do have one of the largest and nicest bonsai collections in the Southeast. What we don't have is a bonsai hydrangea. And that's what I'm going to be working on next is bonsai a hydrangea. Oh, good. Coming up traction. (laughs) Is it as aggressive as Oriental Wisteria? No, it's pretty sweet as far as a garden companion goes. And that's why I think climbing up a tree, it's perfectly happy. It doesn't harm the trees in nature. It's not going to harm a tree in your garden. It does take more shade than the others. And as long as you have moist, well-drained soil, it's going to perform well. I do say it does take a long time for them to bloom. When anybody says, when should I plant a climbing hydrangea? I always say two years ago, because it has to have time to climb up the tree and it doesn't bloom until it gets the light. In fact, there's one here at the 
garden. I've been here six years. It didn't bloom until two years ago. Hmm. It takes a minute for climbing hydrangeas to bloom. Yeah, yeah. Can hydrangeas be invasive? That's a very interesting question. I will tell you that in New Zealand, it is considered a noxious weed and it's no longer being allowed to be imported because it is a weed. It is invasive over there. It's taken over valleys and there are areas in Japan where it's literally taken over valleys. So there can be invasive. Here, no, it's not. I wish more of my hydrangeas would take off, fill in a space. <laughs> Who was Penny McHenry? <gasps> Oh my gosh, Penny McHenry. She was a force of nature. Penny Mac was named after her and it's a kind of a tragic story, kind of a sad story. Her daughter passed away and she was giving at the funeral a, a little tiny hydrangea. She was very depressed, of course, for a long time. And this little hydrangea after the funeral sat in her backyard and she never did anything with it. She watched how it just persevered with neglect and all that and still lived. And so finally she went out and planted it. Then she began air layering it where she she would take branches and put them down on the ground and put a brick over it. And then the date, which helped you to know within about three weeks or six weeks that you'd have another plant from that same plant. It grew and grew and grew. And her garden became this beautiful river of blue. Then another friend of hers who was a landscape designer came in and showed her how to plant other plants with the hydrangeas. And her garden became famous. People would come from all over just to see her beautiful garden, which was over off of Briarcliff Road. And I lived in Chambly at the time. And I would go over to her house and help in her garden. She was in theater and she gave these wonderful talks about hydrangeas. She had a florist who would come and he realized that he would cut and cut and cut these flowers for his florist shop. And he realized that the plant kept blooming. That time, which was roughly 20 years ago, nobody knew that macrophyllas rebloomed. Her hydrangea became famous for that reason. This little plant had no label on it. A breeder got involved, thought she had something really special. The florist decided it was a macrophylla. Let's call it Penny Mac. This florist came up with the name for it. And the rest is really history. Because of her plant, Dr. Durr and others got together and started doing all this breeding with hydrangea macrophyllas that bloomed repeatedly. She was an amazing woman. She passed away just shy of her 86th birthday. She created the American Hydrangea Society, put hydrangeas on the map here in the southeast. She really did. She was an amazing woman. A lot of people traveled with her. You traveled with her some too, didn't you? I did. One of the best trips we ever took was over in Alabama to Eddie Aldridge's hydrangea garden. In fact, he's the one that discovered my favorite Oakley snowflake. It was found on his property. And he was an amazing man, too. And I just remember going with her to his garden, those two, when they got together. But yeah, she was very special. You were talking about her friend or a designer that came into her garden. What did she do set up in his garden that made the difference? The designer, her name is Sandra Jonas, and she's still a fabulous garden designer. And she showed Penny how to put pathways in, add hardscape, add other plants that complemented the macrophyllus, lots of heuchera. She introduced Penny to different other cultivars of hydrangeas. It really kind of opened up Penny's world and she put in a water feature, became a real garden, not just a backyard full of blooms. We've got pictures from the old days of her backyard where it's just a solid wall of blue, which is fine in itself. It became so much more refined when Sandra got involved and helped Penny create this garden, which in fact, when Penny died, this young couple bought the home just for her garden. They continued to maintain the garden up until sadly they got divorced. Another couple bought it. It's been too heartbreaking for me to go back because I understand it's changed. As gardens do. 
As gardens do. There's a Penny McHenry Hydrangea Festival in Douglasville. Yes. It's a fabulous festival. It can bring flowers and they can be judged. And there's crafts. It's become this really cool festival. It's a one-day festival, first Saturday of June. This is a festival's 15th year, and it includes artist market, flower show, tours of private gardens, which are amazing, and have been featured in many publications and TV shows. There'll be miniature gardens, flower market, butterfly gardens, a history museum tour, and lots more. It is an amazing experience. People from over 25 countries and all 50 states have attended this festival. So make your plans the first Saturday in June to be at the Penny McHenry Hydrangea Festival in Douglasville, Georgia. To find out more about the Penny McHenry Hydrangea Festival, go to hydrangeafest.org. That's hydrangeafest.org. There you can get the information you need and buy tickets for the garden tour. If amazing gardens and fun times are your thing, then you'll want to be in Douglasville, Georgia, first Saturday of June every year for the Penny McHenry Hydrangea Festival. And another great thing happening on Father's Day weekend, that's the American Hydrangea Society's garden tour. If you want great ideas in how to use hydrangeas, I highly recommend going on that tour. I think you have to become a member of the American Hydrangea Society, but you get a free ticket to go on this tour. And I can't tell you the ideas that you can steal when you go to someone else's garden. I can't recommend enough going on as many garden tours as you can, because that's where you can get some great ideas. Oh, yes. Garden tours are very inspiring. Do pollinators like hydrangeas? Oh, I will tell you, I'm a beekeeper. My bees love our hydrangeas, and they're all over those fertile, beautiful, little tiny flowers. They're so full of nectar. It's crazy. Yes, they're an important pollinator plant, as long as you don't use chemicals. And so that didn't matter if it's a native or an exotic. It does not. They're both great for pollinators. That's right. Why are hydrangeas called hydrangeas? Well, that's kind of a bit of a misnomer. People think they're called hydrangeas because they need a lot of water, which is sort of true. Actually, their name, hydrangeas, is actually from the hydra part of the name, which if you look at a seed capsule of a hydrangea, especially on a big macrophylla, They look like, to whoever named the hydrangeas, they look like those ancient Greek water-carrying vessels, believe it or not. If you look at a seed pod, it does look like it could be a jar that held water. Now, that, of course, took some imagination. And in fact, they do need somewhat of a lot of water, but they don't like wet feet. They have shallow root systems. So they do tend to dry out more quickly. And I always tell people it's very easy to overwater a hydrangea. I know this past week when it was like 90 degrees, if you'll notice your hydrangea kind of droops in the middle of the day, if it gets a lot of sun, especially afternoon sun, you don't want to water it then. You don't want to water it in the heat of the day for one. Wait until the evening and see if those leaves perk back up on themselves because those leaves, just like us, don't want to be out in the heat of the day. That plant's defense from the harsh sun is to drop its leaves to keep that sun from hitting directly on the full surface of the leaf. I always tell people, don't water your hydrangea until the evening and see if it kind of perks back up because very easy to overwater macrophyllas as well as the serratas. And you really don't want to get the foliage wet. You don't. Getting the foliage wet, and that's another great point, Craig, is get that spotting, which there's two different diseases and they tend to be very disease-free. Macrophyllas especially get anthracnose and that leaf spotting. Now, the simple little dots on a leaf are not going to hurt that plant. The anthracnose looks more cancerous and it's a virus and it continues to kind of grow on that leaf. 
The spotting is simply from overhead watering, which you don't really want to water the leaves. But if you do use overhead watering or a hose, do it in the morning so that those leaves have a chance to dry out before the evening because you don't want that moisture on the leaves all evening long because that's where botrytis comes in. You know, that fuzzy powdery mildew can occur and that leaf spotting it's not attractive. It's not going to kill the plant. It's just going to not be as attractive as you might like. Would you tell us about Smith Gilbert Gardens? Smith Gilbert Gardens is really this hidden gem of Kennesaw. So many people really don't know that we're here, and I'm hoping to change that. We have a fabulous bonsai collection, one of the nicest and largest in the Southeast. We have hydrangea collection. We're 16 acres. We're a public garden owned by the city of Kennesaw. It was a private estate at one time. Dr. Gilbert and Richard Smith lived here and they were big birders. Some of the first plants they planted were viburnums and hollies. So we have a huge collection of viburnums and hollies because those produce berries that birds love. They actually settled on this property because Kennesaw Mountain is a migratory flight landmark for many, many birds. So we get birds coming through here that a lot of people in Georgia don't get because they're using the mountain. There were big art collectors have this huge outdoor sculpture collection, and we were pairing with KSU. KSU, that's Kennesaw State University. And their foundry program, and so we're getting these really cool new sculptures from these students. That's another neat aspect. In July, we have our huge butterfly exhibit, which is 1,500 square feet of thousands of butterflies. In fact, there's so many in there, it sounds like snowfall when you're quiet. And you get to see the whole life cycle of the butterfly. You'll see the egg, the caterpillar, the chrysalis, the butterflies. It's actually one of my favorites. And in September, we have our hummingbird banding event. This is where we actually capture hummingbirds. We have people who are licensed to do so. There's only like 200 of them in the United States. She comes and they have these special cages. They catch them and then we band them and then you get to release a hummingbird. So that's one of my other favorite events. The butterfly exhibit opens July 1st and the hummingbird banding event is in September. It's a beautiful garden. We're not ADA compliant yet, but we will be because as I said, it was a private estate. It's beautiful woodland trails. We've got a waterfall. We've got koi. And a beautiful historic home. It's one of the oldest structures in Kennesaw, built in circa 1880, we think, by Hiram Butler. This garden has something for everybody. Oh, and we have two garden cats. Yeah, if you teach them how to keep the deer away. <laughs> I know, right? I think I'm going to put a fake mane on my big orange tabby and make them think it's a lion. <laughs> They're the stars of the gardens for sure. What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building and growing a garden? Stop using chemicals. Yeah. That's the number one thing. When people ask, how do you do a pollinator garden? Stop using chemicals. Just stop it. Homeowners associations really are killing the pollinators with their perfect desert lawns of green, which it's just, it's not sustainable for one thing. We really have to be more practical and think of the time that you'll save and the money you'll save if you don't use chemicals. People are constantly trying to get rid of their insects. If you get rid of the insects, you're going to get rid of the birds. I can't even stress that enough. We need insects. And people are like spraying constantly for their mosquitoes. And I always tell people, if you want to sit outside on your deck on a summer evening and the mosquitoes are bothering you, buy yourself a fan and blow the suckers away. It's as simple as that. There is no need to spray. Because one of the number one food sources for a hummingbird for their babies is mosquitoes. They do have purpose. People are starting to realize it. I think they're starting to come around. We need to get away from that. I think we need to rethink the American landscape. What's your earliest garden memory? Yeah, 
my grandmother. Apparently it skips generation because my mom would not come out in the garden with me for nothing. But my grandmother, oh my gosh, my grandmother taught me everything about gardening and flowers and animals and bugs. There is not a single thing in nature that I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid of snakes or spiders. Scorpions, I think, are so pretty. It's people that kind of get me. I think we just need to be more tolerant. I remember finding a snake. I was cutting the grass as a kid because I used to love to cut the grass. And I brought that snake in. My mom was at the kitchen table. She was popping beans. And my grandmother was at the sink. And I said, Mom, look what I found. And my mom fell over, fainted. And my grandmother just started laughing. And she took me outside with that snake and showed me what kind of snake it was. It was a garter snake. Really taught me everything. She really did. She made me appreciate every living thing was out there. So yeah, my grandma. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? <laughs> That's another crazy story. I did not go to school for horticulture. It was a passion of mine, but it was not something I thought I could make a career of. I was actually a talent agent for stand-up comedians. One of our clients was Jeff Oxworthy. It was the Punchline Talent Agency, and I did that for probably 20 years. And then I turned 40, had a midlife crisis, and let me just say, that was well over 20 years ago, and decided to give it all up and go to work at a little nursery. The rest is history. I never look back. I'm all about following your passion. I think that is truly the only way to really be happy. Do what you love. Yes, it's called a job for a reason. This is the best job I've ever had. And it's like that old commercial for the Peace Corps. It's the hardest job you'll love because you're out there in the 98 degree weather and you're out there in the cold and the rain. And I'm incredibly lucky and grateful to have the job that I have. You've already told us a couple of funny garden stories, but have you got another one? Well, it's funny because in the butterfly exhibit, what amazed me is how many people didn't understand. It was like the chicken and the egg. Oh, well, we thought the chrysalis was the egg. People's understanding of where butterflies come from was amazing to me. To see people's expressions when they come in the butterfly exhibit, it's funny because typically people that are terrified of insects and nature, to watch them as they go into the butterfly exhibit and go, oh my gosh, butterflies. It's like they forget at the end of the day that they're just another insect, albeit they're pretty. People's reactions to the butterflies is always funny to me. Well, your mom passing out at the snipe was pretty funny. Oh, the moment my mom passed out the snake, yeah, yeah. Oh, and then there was the time my brother was cutting the grass. I don't know why I loved cutting grass because I certainly hate it now. I gave him a dollar to let me cut the grass. And he's like, well, sure. I ran over poison ivy. Let me just say it was all in the air. Oh my gosh, I will never forget that as long as I live. I think that probably was the end of my career as far as grass cutting. Oh, and then when we had our tomatoes, and I remember my first horned worm caterpillar, and I was, oh my God, I love that thing. And I tried to raise it. <laughs> I wanted to keep that snake so bad. and My mom wouldn't let me. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Oh, wow. Probably Ozzie Johnson, Dan Hinckley, Ron Dieterman. You know, these are all people that really kind of guided me and took me under their wings. Ozzie Johnson, by far, really was everything. I mean, he just taught me everything and forever grateful. Oh, Carol Reese. Carol Reese is another big influencer. Like, I love that woman and I love listening to her talk. She's another big one. Coming from entertainment, that's such a selfish profession because it's all about you. It's all about the applause, blah, blah, blah. But in gardening, you'll meet the most giving people. And I've laughed more in horticulture than I ever did as a talent agent. And I've enjoyed my life more. What's your most valuable garden advice someone ever gave you? I would say, don't be afraid to move a plant. If it's not happy, move it. All my plants have moving sickness. My gardens in the beginning were all plant-based design. Go to a garden center and find a plant, take it home, and then I'd walk around for a couple hours trying to decide where to plant it. I think having a plan was one of the best advices I ever got, whether that's you sitting down and thinking about it or having it done professionally. It'll save you a lot of money. Yeah, it will. I think one of the hardest things to do is design a plan for yourself, though. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Right now, I have toddler's wife syndrome. 
have three and a half acres, people are like, oh, I bet your garden's beautiful. I'm like, not really. Grass needs cutting and my window boxes are dead. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, gosh. Oh, so uh, I'll never forget this. I had a beautiful perennial border. I was so proud of it. I think that's when my start of non-organic products started to really kind of get me. So I bought a bag of 10, 10, 10. I had these beautiful hydrangeas and roses and perennial border. Oh my God, I was so proud of it. People would stop and just, uh, and I just started pretending like I was feeding chickens. I was just tossing this 10, 10, 10 out there. And oh, I, I burned up my whole garden and I will never forget it. And I never used commercial fertilizer like that again killed me. From then on, it was compost. I like to call commercial fertilizer junk food for plants. I think it has a purpose. I think sometimes miracle Grow, the liquid, is good to use. Gosh, burning up my garden, that devastated me. Not to mention all the salt that's in fertilizer. I know I killed some worms and ugh, yeah, that was the worst mistake I ever made. Oh, that and planting glory bower. I had to literally move away from my house to get away from that plant. Don't ever plant glory bower. It's beautiful, but oh my gosh, it's invasive. It's this beautiful perennial that shoots out runners and it takes over. It's like bamboo. Don't ever plant bamboo either or English ivy. What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding your garden? The soil here is so different than what I'm used to. In Shambly, believe it or not, I had the perfect soil. I could stick a broomstick in that soil and something would grow because they didn't remove the topsoil. And it was all farmland apparently at one time. So I lived across from PDK Airport. I'm not kidding. That soil was, oh, it was beautiful. And I moved here to Kennesaw. I've got this thing about rocks. I love rocks. All the rocks in Chamblee, I had a U-Haul just for my rocks and packed up this U-Haul and brought it to my house here in Kennesaw now. And let me just say, there are so many rocks in this soil here, I can't put a shovel in the ground. I rented a U-Haul, brought rocks because I was worried I wasn't going to have a Anyway, yeah, I have so many rocks. So I'm going to try a technique where it's non-tilling. I'm just going to get compost and put it on top of the rock. I'm not going to try to do a pickaxe in it anymore and just plant on top of that. I'm just going to try that with this garden if I ever have time to do that. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. No time. (laughs) In my garden, I have no time to do it. I get home and it's so funny. It's like I work all day here keeping garden rooms beautiful. And then I get home and it's like, oh God, I got to drag a hose and water, keep the plants I have in pots along my driveway alive. It's like I'm constantly, I just don't have time to work in my own garden, which is sad. Did you learn anything from your garden this past year that you're applying this year? I put in these window boxes on my railing of my front porch. I didn't think about the eave of the roof. Anything I plant in those window boxes doesn't get any rain. I was constantly having to drag the hose over to water them and it up high. That was a real learning curve for me. So I think if I do plant anything, it's going to be succulents in those window boxes or cactus. What are your future plans for your garden when you have time? Oh, I've got so many. I've got so many. So I love dwarf Japanese maples and I love camellias. And I would love to put in a water feature in the front underneath the porch. I got to tell you, I live on Pine Mountain Road. The sound of the traffic. I don't even have to have an alarm clock because the sound of the traffic building in the morning, I know it's time for me to get up. I want to drown that noise out. So I'd love to put in a water feature that made lots of water sounds and then take those plants up my driveway and get them planted. I planted three plants last week and it took me six hours because the soil here sucks so bad. Yes, I would love to put my Japanese maple collection in the ground. They're dwarfs, so they're not going to get really big. I want it to look like somebody lives there again, which it doesn't. (laughs) It looks like nature's taking over. What's the favorite plant in your garden this week? 
Oh, the Annabelle hydrangeas. They're getting ready to explode. And I'm so excited. I love that plant. It's a beautiful hydrangea. And it's just this beautiful, frothy white that's going to come on. All the other hydrangeas are going to come on. But before that, camellias. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Oh, my gosh. I found, you know what a sport is on a plant? Yes. Tell us about it. Sport is a naturally occurring mutation on a plant. For example, I happened to walk past this camellia all the time, and it had two different kind of blooms. One was candy striped, and the other one was this beautiful double pink flower. I thought, wow, that's really unusual. So I watched it for two years to make sure what I was seeing happened reliably. Sure enough, I got in touch with the American Camellia Society, and they came out and they looked. What we think happened is that a branch from a pine tree fell on top of this camellia and that wound kind of either split the gene, if you will, or something that wound caused it to create this sport. It's this beautiful double pink that we have the rights to name the camellia and we sold the rights at our gala for $6,500. This lucky woman won the rights to it and the camellia is going to be called Lady Diane. Be sure to come back because our camellia collection is really outstanding. And we're now on the American Camellia Society trail. We have 99 different camellias here at the gardens. It's really, really beautiful. And that's another plant that hydrangeas need. I love pairing hydrangeas with camellias because one, in the wintertime, you've got just those brown sticks. So you want some interest. So have an evergreen structure and what better evergreen than a camellia because you're going to have that bloom. So you can have so many seasons of interest if you do it that way. We planted a lot of our collection down in our camellia trail area. So lots of good stuff. Yeah. Can't wait to see all that. We also have one of the first of its kind in Georgia, Crevice Garden. I don't know if you know what that is. Tell us about that. They've been doing it for years in the Czech Republic. In Europe, they love their rock gardens and they love those little tiny dwarf bunny plants, you know, and they're they're dwarf and, and round. They're trying to stay out of the harsh conditions of the mountains. And so they grow in these tiny little cracks. They develop this technique where you take pieces of thin rock and make these crevices. And the theory is that you shake all the soil off the plant and you plant it down deep in this crevice. So the top of the plant rests on top of the rock and then it's got this great deep root structure. They're planted in nothing but sand. It is the leanest soil you will ever find. It causes plants to grow really dwarfly. Here in the South, we can't grow alpine plants. It's just too hot and too wet. When we did our crevice garden, we used plants that were naturally dwarf occurring. So it's kind of like a redneck crevice garden, if you will. These plants are all sort of dwarf, smaller growing plants. We planted them where most people use rock. We chose concrete. They're doing a lot of construction down around City Hall and they tore up the old sidewalk. I saved four tons of concrete from going into the landfill and used the old sidewalk from down around our city hall here in Kennesaw, created this really cool rock garden with this really cool design. We're able to grow plants that we typically can't grow in the South. You know, those fancy little cactus that you can get at the big box stores. Those plants will live here because I always tell people it gets cold in Arizona where these cactus are from. It's not the cold that kills the plants here in the South. It's the wet. In this crevice garden, the drainage is so perfect because of just the sand and the rock that we're able to grow little tiny cactus and they're blooming right now in the garden. It's a really neat new concept in rock gardening. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I haven't heard of that before. Interesting. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Get out there and garden. Being out in nature, being out in your garden, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. It really is. And it's the best thing you can do for the creatures out there as well if you do it responsibly. 
Lisa, tell us how people may connect with you. I am on Facebook, but you're going to mostly see videos and stuff of my dog. You can reach me on Facebook, on Instagram. And if you forget all that, then you can check out Plinth Gilbert Gardens website where my email's on there as well. This has been episode 112, Hydrangeas for Your Garden, with Lisa Bartlett on the Garden Question podcast, an encore presentation and remix of episode 59. Thank you, Lisa. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.